Hey, this is Ashley. Welcome to the Manmukti podcast, where we speak up about South Asian mental health. We're here to connect you with mental health professionals and those with lived experiences of mental health illnesses. Today, we're going to be talking to Kimberly Palmer, a licensed professional counselor at the Brazos Valley Sexual Assault Research Center. We're going to be discussing the effects of sexual assault and sexual assault in multi- multicultural communities. Then, we'll be discussing how to help loved ones in crisis. Hi, Kim. Thank you for um, allowing me to interview you, by the way. I don't think I said that. My pleasure. Yeah. Uh, do you think you could give us an overview of uh, you know, what you do, where you're located, that kind of thing? Okay, so I'm a mental health therapist, and I also do the outreach here. So we cover seven counties uh, that's surrounding the Brazos Valley area, and that's a lot of uh, counties and miles to to overcome here. So we do a lot of education Mm -hmm. to teach people on uh, sexual abuse and what to do if it happens and where to go for help. All of our monies and uh, services are free. It's grant-funded. We don't deny anybody. We have a 24-hour hotline. So uh, they're all trained by the Office of Attorney General. So if there's anybody that wants to call in the middle of the night or on Christmas Day or on Hanukkah or Thanksgiving or whatever, we have all someone um, answering the phone. So you can call 979-731-1000 There'll always be someone to talk to. All right, awesome. Um, how did you become passionate about mental health and like sexual assault? Well, I think that a lot of, maybe not all would agree with this, but I believe that we all get drawn to this field because out of our own pain and the pain that we've grown up with. And myself, I grew up in a very addictive home, so I also have a chemical dependency license as well. And that's what I did for the first, you know, part of my career. And then I recently went back and got my master's in human behavior and um now working as an LPC intern, which I'm about to get my hours in, so I'll be fully licensed, but I've been doing this work since the early um, 80s, and so I have a lot of experience with addiction, and unfortunately, because both my parents were addicts, and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles, when you think of addiction, you think of crisis, Mm -hmm. and when you think of crisis, there's always shame involved. And shame is one of those emotions that keep people from asking for help. And the difference between shame and guilt is guilt says I've done something wrong. I spilled my milk and there is an opportunity for repair. But if I've spilled my milk and I'm shamed and said, you know, told that I'm a stupid, worthless little girl and that there is no excuse for me, then there's no opportunity for repair there. And I don't learn from my mistakes. I learn that I am a mistake. So shame is a big, huge part. And there's no way to solve it. There is not. uh, Unless you come to therapy and someone teaches you the difference and Mm -hmm. says, usually the shame belongs to someone else, first of all. It's not yours. Because if you're a little girl and you've you've, um, spilt your milk, you spilt your milk. That's the truth about it. It's not that you're this shameful little girl that is horrible and is a mistake. The truth is, I made a mistake and I need to learn from it. And so in therapy, we would teach you the difference and ask you to, to tell the truth about it. And the truth is, I was seven, and I'm still learning, mm-hmm. and I'm clumsy a little bit sometimes, and I was distracted, and I spilled my milk. So when people learn that there's a difference, and we learn more about our emotions, and we can define our emotions, then 
we go, oh, I get it. It's not as bad as I thought it was. I'm, I'm not this crazy person. I'm human. I'm human, yeah. yes. And we, we are given emotions. And most of the public, we recognize anger, sadness, and happiness. But there's like hundreds of emotions. And when we figure out that it's really not about angry, about anger, it's about I'm hurt or I'm scared or I'm lonely uh, or I'm feeling shame. Then mm. when we can divide, define it, then we know what we're working with. Mm. It's it's a much more specific than just saying I'm angry. Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. All right. So first we're going to talk about, you know, the effects of sexual assault. Um, what are the psychological effects or even health effects um, of sexual assault and abuse? Well, first of all, we think we did something to deserve it. And the truth about sexual assault is it's a planned event. That person, whoever's assaulting you, knows they're going to do it. And for whatever reason, they picked you. Maybe you remind them of something or you're just there's just an opportunity. But it's nothing you did, nothing you were wearing or not wearing, nothing you said or said, didn't say. That person, it's a planned event. And so we question ourselves quite a bit. And then the shame that I was talking about earlier is part of it because I can't, no one's going to believe me, especially, I know you're going to get to the cultural issue, depending on whatever the cultural issues are. Nobody, this is a, this is a taboo subject. We don't still in 2017 talk about sex to our kids. So we aren't told that it's okay to come and ask questions about it. Yeah, especially it's not taught in schools either. No. Like body safety, that kind no, of thing. No, and, and we even ask educators to go out, and they're like, no, we can't talk about that stuff. Yeah, there's so much red tape. There right? is, yeah, and it, it is depends on your administrator. The person in the school, if they're privy to this kind of thing or not, but for the most part, they're going to say, oh, parents are going to get upset. They're going to be mad that we talked about condoms or that we talked about you know, what safe sex is and what's not because they just want pure abstinence. Well, what's the reality of that? I mean, that would be great in the real world, mm -hmm. but that's really yeah. not the way it is. All right. So, so some, some of the, the symptoms, the emotional responses are crying, shock. I can't believe this happened. I can't sleep now because I just keep seeing the event and I'm fearful that person's going to come back. Um, I feel uh, guilty. I don't know where I am. I go to another room and go, what am I here for? I have a hard time finding directions when I'm driving. I feel disoriented and I'm just not myself. Those are the first initials. Like those first, uh, those moments of shock. Yeah. Uh, what do you think the long-term, like, you know, going later on into adulthood or, you know, So you, it's interesting that you ask that because I thought it was the typical scenario of someone jumping out of the woods and grabbing you and raping you is so rare. It's mm -hmm. maybe 5% of the people that we see here. I'd say 40% of the people we see here are young college students that um, uh, were at a party or they went out to a bar or you know somebody just accosted them in their home and it's usually someone they know. The other 40% are people that are in their 50s and 60s and they've lived a life of something that happened to them when they were 20 and didn't say it or domestic violence or sexual assault from an intimate partner. And their intimacy and their partnerships, even their husbands, um, they end up breaking up because they don't understand why they feel crazy, why mm -hmm. they're uncomfortable um, having sex with the lights on. or So it has huge wanting, consequences has for huge. further interpersonal relationships. Yes, and, and you think about it, 
it doesn't only affect that one person. It affects many people in your life because now your husband's involved. Maybe it's affected relationships with your siblings somehow and because they don't even maybe know the story. Maybe they feel betrayed because they can't talk to their mom and maybe they did talk to their mom and their mom said, oh, put it in the past or you shouldn't have done that or, you know, that's where more shame comes in. So yeah, it's there's long lasting effects. And if you don't come and talk about it, it's going to have control over you. And continue to eat away. And continue to eat away. Mm -hmm. And that can get into some physical symptoms too. I mean, there might be, you know, stomach aches, back aches, headaches, and some of that can manifest you know, I can't quote you the exact statistics or the re, uh, the research, but they're even saying that cancer and other oh, yeah. kind of physical ailments are a result of undealt with emotional pain. Yeah, I was actually reading uh, from the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health that um, yes. things like diabetes, yes. uh, heart disease are very connected to childhood trauma and things yes. like that. Well, just before I forget to tell you that, because I'm an addictions counselor as well, um, we always find that food and sex go together. So if you've been sexually abused, then usually we use food to comfort us. And then you then you go from the sexual addiction issues, whether it's bulimia, anorexia, um, acting out or acting in, and then we use food. So normally if there's a food addiction or people struggling with food, it's probably also a sexual assault issue as well. Oh, okay. Uh, what are some of the, like, like diagnoses like depression or anxiety that later on kind of manifest as a result of sexual assault? Definitely depression and anxiety and that's uh, easily I mean happens because depression is about the past and anxiety is about the future. So you have you're depressed because these things happen to you and now because of the fearful the behavioral responses and not trusting people and such now you're going to be difficult about anticipating the future. Yeah. So yes, the other diagnosis is most of the time would be adjustment disorders, which that's a pretty catch-all okay. um, diagnosis because we are having a hard time adjusting to life after this assault, mm -hmm. even if it's 40 years later. And then the most common one is post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay. So which encompasses kind of that anxiety, yes. depression, etc. Yes, et that's part of it. Okay. Um, also, I just wanted to touch on like male survivors of sexual assault, like. Mm -hmm. Are there any unique issues or stigma that they deal with? Yes, it's really brave when we get a male come in here because they have overcome so many obstacles and so much stigma and they don't care because they're in so much pain. And when they come in, we are so excited that they do because most of them hold it in. They're never going to talk about it because mm -hmm. they, they may never be in a place where they feel safe enough where someone's not going to judge them or accuse them of being gay or not that anything's wrong with that, but the fact that they're, uh, they're going to be called that. Yeah. Um, or, scary. And, and scary. Yeah. And people aren't going to understand. I had a, a young man came in the other day and, um, at six years old, he didn't know better. They, he said, can I play with your video games? And the guy goes, yeah, if you play with my blah, blah, blah. And so the kid's like, okay. And he didn't realize till he was like 20 that that wasn't cool. Yeah. And that it, he was experiencing some shame from it. But he didn't know at six years old. Nobody, he, mm -hmm. no one's ever introduced that to him Actually, before. Actually, one of the hotline calls that really like shook me or like, re I guess made an impact on me later on was when I, like it was, it was a male survivor because you realize how much added like, you know, pain, like it, not to say that there's not pain from female survivors, right. but it's a different type. Like, it is. You know. It is. It's very courageous for them to come out. And 
Um, we do have a male therapist here, and it's nice to have that extra um, asset because when they may not feel comfortable with males, first of all, but maybe it's nice to have a role model of somebody that doesn't do those things to mm -hmm. guys. So, Or maybe they don't even want to have a female therapist to begin with. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, also, moving on, I wanted to kind of touch on sexual assault in multicultural communities because the thing about sexual abuse, I, I'm just kind of focusing on this for, you know, in the context of what I'm talking about makes sense. You know, South Asian culture is very communal, as I told you, rather mm -hmm. than individualistic. And because of that, there there will be times when you'll have relatives you don't even know staying at your house for weeks, months at a time. And situations like that are the perfect instance for um, sexual abuse to take place. Absolutely. Um, additionally, when, okay, we think that in our society living in, you know, College Station, Texas, that, you know, schools don't want to talk about sexual abuse or assault times that by 10 and we're looking at how taboo it is in South Asian culture. Yeah. So I think that there's also that. And then also the importance of family. Mm -hmm. So the family unit is so important that it, it, to accuse someone would be honestly grounds for like excommunicating a person. Yeah. So that's kind of, we're going yeah, back to shame, uh -huh. which is kind of why I wanted to touch on that. So do you think, or I think you did kind of just say it being, uh, there's an increased sense of shame in, a surrounding sexual abuse, how do you think that that affects a survivor with a multicultural background, uh, their ability to disclose or their willingness to disclose the sexual assault? Well, again, we go back to tremendous courage, like we were talking about with the males. Even just last week, we had someone come, and she was from the Muslim community, and she wanted to get here so badly, and she was um, nervous, the fact that she could only get away for X amount of time because they were going to question what was where she was if she wasn't back by a certain time so she said I'm coming over I'm, I'm telling them I'm gonna do my groceries so and I can't I can't have but this amount of time and on her way she gets a flat well then she calls us and she well she doesn't call us she doesn't call at all so we call her to check on her and she's like I'm so sorry she was very um, um, apologetic and she's like I, I'm afraid that I'm gonna disappoint you so she was had all this pressure of I've, I've got to tell and I've got X amount of time and I'm going to disappoint the people at the sexual assault center and I've got a flat and so she just gave up and we were, we were like please come back please make another appointment mm. so it was just such burden so many burdens that she was trying to think and anytime that we are struggling with that many pressures going on in our head we can't think so she might have run over something by mistake or maybe it was just a fluke but she never even got to come and talk about it. So you know she's just not sleeping at night. She's scared to death, wondering when's the next time she can get away, knowing she needs to talk about this, and her family just can never find out about it. Yeah, or being in an environment that's so hostile that you know if they knew, that would be so detrimental, Yeah, so bad. And not knowing what they might do to you if they did find out that you yeah. had said something. So no, it definitely it affects uh, survivors' ability to disclose. Yeah, I think a lot of times people are like, "Well, why didn't you tell me?" Right. And it's like, I, it's not why. Why didn't you want to tell me? It's I couldn't tell you. Like, mm -hmm. do you see? It, mm -hmm. It's it's funny. It's sometimes it's ability, not even willingness. Well, that's funny. You should say that because there is a thing in our heads that we, you know, you've heard of the fight or flight syndrome. Mm -hmm. Well, when we get put in those positions, we are, we are fearful and we innately either run away or we go into something. 
and most most sexual assault victims run away and so they don't say anything and they're in crisis when that happens and when we're in crisis our ability to think goes away yeah i think another thing is kind of there's fight flight freeze, freeze. what's the other one that's it i think it's freeze, freeze. okay because yes. i think another thing is if you freeze and then you think oh well then i didn't say anything then i can't go saying anything now yes you know that's another one that yes. i think really gets overlooked it does yeah, and they go, why didn't I say anything? Because you couldn't say anything. Because your brain, that fight or flight or freeze is a protection mode. And if your your brain's recognizing that you're in danger, it's going to protect you at all costs. Mm -hmm. So it's going to shut down your ability to think straight, which is the prefrontal cortex, the executive thinking. And when that's when you're in crisis and when you're in the midst of that, the only thing that's operating is the amygdala that says, danger, 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 go protect yourself. So we sh sometimes we shut down. Yeah, and that's something that really does get overlooked mm -hmm. by people. Um, in your opinion, what do you think can be done like as a community to fight that shame, silence, and that stigma that's surrounding sexual violence in multicultural communities? Um, I think in all communities, in multicultural communities, there's a whole lot more involved, I think. I mean, I don't know if you can ever really do anything about mm -hmm. culturals unless the cult, the leaders in the culture step up and say, it's okay for us to talk about this and think about that. say, not mm -hmm. in my place, no more. So if maybe if you can get to a leader that can influence change, that... Um, people would look up to, I guess. But I think that the generic thing to do is we need to educate our males more because I think a lot of males don't even realize that what they're doing could be considered sexual assault. Mm -hmm. And women don't even know that consent is what it's all about. When I say it's okay, then you can. But you you can't say you're okay when you're under 18. Yeah. So there's not a consent, consent. there. Well, sometimes what I think is okay, well, let's say you have a perpetrator who does know what they're doing is wrong, who does understand it's non-consensual. Where does that come? I mean, what is this person considered? Why are they, is it acculturated stress? That's something I know a lot of people wonder, like, what drove this person to do that? I mean, are they just experimenting? Are they, I mean, is there something very, very wrong, like a pedophilia? Like, that's something I think that's that also... Yes, People get all the above. On. Yes, okay, most so likely depends. they've been abused themselves because oh. we don't learn that. We aren't born with that. We mm -hmm. are, we have to learn it from somewhere. And um, there are people that treat the the uh, actual perpetrator, but it's very rare that they are willing to get the help needed because that's their release. It's kind of it could be an addiction. But it feel that's their release. So when they perpetrate, when they assault, then they feel better. So why would they want to change that? Mm -hmm. It's all about them, you know. And but it probably happened to them as well at a very young age. Yeah, that's really um, that. That's an interesting one because I know a lot of people wonder that. Yeah. Um, or they just may have a mental health issue anyway that they're born with, and they. It might be a genetic thing where there's schizophrenia and, or a personality disorder, anti-social anti personality disorder or something, and all of those things can be genetic. Okay, makes sense. Um, also, I kind of wanted to move on to talking about helping loved ones in crisis because I know like, I have a lot of friends who say, you know, I have a friend, he is kind of talking about killing, or, you know, like having suicidal thoughts, talking about killing himself, what do I do? So that's kind of like what I wanted to talk about now. 
if someone has a friend who is exhibiting like increasingly like suicidal ways of talking or acting, um, how do you think that should be handled as a friend? Well, it's always, it's a really tough subject because we think if we ask them, then they're going to go through with it. And the truth is, if they're going to go through it, they're going to go through with it. There's nothing you can do to stop them or not. But the questions that you need to ask, there's three questions. Do you want to hurt yourself? Do you have a plan? And what's the method in which you're, when are you going to do it by? Those are tough questions to ask because that means we're agreeing that you have intent to do this. And if all three of those questions can be a answered yet positively, then you need to call the police. Okay. So Makes sense. if they say, well, I think I'm going to hang myself. And um, yes, I would like to do that. Do you have a plan? Well, no, I'm not going to do that anytime soon, but I have thought about it. Then they're not suicidal. They have suicide ideation. So they're thinking about it. Okay. So it's, but they're tough questions. Just to kind ask. of judging on the scale. Um, you know, I think we talked about is the Columbia suicide severity uh -huh. scale, um, where they, you know, fall on the spectrum. Like, are they, how intent are they on, you know, going through with it? Yes, but those okay. three questions are the best questions to ask. Okay, makes and if sense. they can answer all three of them, and if you have any concerns, just call the police anyway, because they know how to ask those questions. Yeah. But we don't want to mess with it, because if, you know, if they have that plan, you know, maybe we can intervene for a while to get them out of that crisis mode mm -hmm. that we were talking about earlier. Because a lot of times it comes down to tunnel vision. It does. They're not seeing yes. the bigger picture. That's right. They're just feeling yeah. pain. I always try and tell people that when they're like, I just can't imagine how you could be so in so much pain you'd want to kill yourself. And I'm like, it's tunnel vision. You're not seeing the, like, you know, people in crisis aren't seeing the bigger picture. They see that that's the only option right now. And if you've had people in your family that have committed suicide, then it becomes a coping skill. You think that that's an option. Mm -hmm. So that's another question of other people in your family um, committed suicide. If so, they think that's okay. Mm -hmm. um, I think, yes. um, was it Maddie that told us this during training? But this really stuck with me. She said, stop seeing suicide as killing yourself, oneself and see it as this person has exhausted all coping mechanisms yes. that they know. It, it was an interesting uh, way of looking at it. Yes, and they've done studies of people that have survived suicide, and most of them would say, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I really did it. So they just see it as an option or one of their only options, but it, they don't see it as a permanent thing. Okay, makes sense, yeah. Um, so what's the, first, this is something like I've actually wondered for a long time before getting involved with the Sexual Assault Resource Center. What is the difference between sympathy and empathy? Okay. Like when you're talking. That's a really good question. Yeah. Empathy is when, um, you can understand or not understand what they're going through. Um, so instead of, okay, your mom passed away or something and like I'm really sorry your mother passed away poor you it puts them in a place of pity or victim so you're feeling sorry for them and nobody really wants you to feel sorry for them the way to say it instead in empathetic terms is wow that must be really hard I can't imagine how you must be feeling because we all have we don't have the same relationship with that mom that they did and mm -hmm. they don't have a relationship with my mom as I did so um, we try not to say, I understand, because we can't understand. We may have an idea of it. So sympathy puts them in a place of being a victim and, you know, poor you, 
pity you and empathy meets them where you are all right just says okay this is really tough it's just you just kind of uh, meet them where they're at and say that must be really hard and they're more likely to open up to you if you have more of an empathetic response so you meet them where they're at rather than put them below you kind of that metaphor of looking into the hole talking to someone and going inside the hole and talking to them yes, when they're stuck. Exactly, in that's a really good one. Yeah, wasn't it from that Brene Brown video? Oh yeah, yeah I think she's that's wonderful. What, yeah, she. Um, I like her TED talks. I think she has like two or three. She's really, and she's got those cartoons that you were talking mm -hmm. about. That and she has such, such a good narration she voice. Does. Like it's just like you know those like audiobook voices. Uh -huh. like, yeah. But all right, and then what's active listening? Active listening is giving eye contact. You know, acknowledging that they just said something and all your focus is on that person and you're not thinking through what you should say back to them, that you're focusing on their words and acknowledging that you've heard them and um, being empathetic and go, wow, that must be really tough. I think we do that a lot where even in arguments, we're so busy thinking what's the next thing we're going to say that yes. we're not even listening to what the person's saying. Right. Yes. And if you're doing that, you're not actively listening. All mm -hmm. you're doing is preparing your whatever the next case is that you're going to say in response to whatever they say. Mm -hmm. And kind of also like, uh-huh, yeah, like making sure they know that you, you're hearing them. That kind yeah. Of thing. yeah. Okay, cool. Um, another one is like, you know, because this is kind of like what we're talking about. If someone does believe they have been sexually assaulted or abused, what do you think they should do? They're coming to you and you know they have. Yeah, like let's say, you know, I have a friend who comes to me and says, I think I was sexually abused as a child, I don't know what to do, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Or especially if that person may like be a family member or a close uh, friend to the family, or it was recently as a, a young adult, um, what do you think that that person should do? Well, first of all, know that you must be a safe person or they wouldn't have told you. So it's okay for you to ask more questions. Tell me more about that. What do you want to do about it? Would you consider going and um, just talking to somebody? Can I get you some information on it? Would you be okay if we called the sexual assault center? Or let's Google it and find out what some, you know, kind of meet them where they're at. Don't move too fast with them, but let them know what their options are. And education, of course, is the first thing. After creating safety and, you know, letting them know, you know, thank you so much for trusting me. Gosh, that must be really hard. And and if you're questioning it, then it's probably worth learning more about it. So let's just go learn more about it. If they're mm -hmm. not ready yet, then at least provide them with a phone number. Uh, maybe if you know somebody else that has also been sexually assaulted, if you could ask them, hey, I know another person, would you be willing to talk to someone else that yeah, I know? Yeah, to connect. Yeah. Oh, that's a good idea. I never thought about that one. Yeah. Um, another one, I you know, there's something I've been thinking of lately. We were talking earlier about the red tape when it comes to talking to um, public schools about body safety. It was my understanding it's the law that body safety education, or I don't think it's sex education, that falls more under the umbrella of like human sexuality. Mm -hmm. But like, is that not something that is the law here in Texas? You know, I'd have to look into it. I do believe that there there is a, um, a recommendation that they address that. I think it's done in the health classes. Oh, well, you can recommend it. The sad part is Will it be enforced? In. Right. Uh, but I do believe it's done in the health classes, and I think they do talk about consent. But there are some school districts that are more progressive and more mm -hmm. willing. Um, we have 
we have school districts just that are really small rural school districts that will let in let us in and show the movie um oh gosh it's slipping my mind right now but it's a documentary on uh two girls that experienced sexual assault and their desire to gosh i'm gonna have to give it to you later okay. and then you're gonna have to say something but daisy daisy and something else it's on hbo oh okay and i have hbo i got the yeah. free trial like last week Daisy and something. Oh, I hate that I don't I tell that, that for you right now. But uh, so we actually go into the classrooms and we show it, and then we do a group process about it. And we do two classes in the morning to of the women, the ninth and tenth graders, girls, and then we do eleventh and twelfth grader girls, and then process it. And then the afternoon we do the same with the guys. And there's such a difference in the reaction between the girls and the guys. The guys are making fun. And thinking, oh, dude, yeah, high five and all that stuff. And the girls are, like, ready to fight because they can't believe this is happening. Yes, they feel empowered. That's interesting. It's a really good documentary. Okay. I'll give it to you before you leave and you can announce it. What do you think uh, is a way for adults who have, you know, maybe have children or people who have younger uh, siblings to keep their, you know, uh, these young people in their lives safe from you know sexual abuse yeah i would talk about it i would let them know let you know it's not okay for people to to touch you where the bathing suit is um it's only acceptable when you tell them it's okay and you can't tell them it's okay until you're over 18 and you're an adult and to not get themselves into positions to be with a buddy all the time you know, watch their drinks, um, and but just have an open, open communication about it, yes. And if it's happened to you, maybe you start, you share a little bit that's age appropriate. But, um, you know, I have two daughters myself, and because I've been around this, they probably get more education on it than most people do. But I have a, a young, my youngest one's going into U of H uh, next week. So I'm always oh, talking good. to her about it, you know, and she's, she told me the other day, Mom, I was on my way back from my Texas driver's license to get it gone from, you know, under 18 to oh, 18 yeah. now. She goes, I saw this guy on the street. It was really hot, and I wanted to pick him up. But I said, no, my mother would be so mad because it's possible that he could rape me. I'm like, oh, gosh, I don't want to scare like, her I don't want to scare her so much that she's, like, paralyzed. Yes, <laughs> and so, but I'm glad she didn't stop and pick him up because she might have. And probably he would have been fine, but you don't know. I gotta do the same thing. Like, is she kind of talking when you're driving? You see someone, maybe they got stranded on the side of the road. Or, but see, that's the thing is, like, as women, we have to be, like, I'm not saying, um, yes, it does happen to men, but there is a higher incidence. So, you said, and there's a something we lack physically as far as defending ourselves. Right. So, So I asked her, what would have been the better thing for you to do? And she's like, I guess call the police. I'm like, yeah, or call your dad. And, you know, if somebody else is close by, ask them to go check it out, but not when you're alone. Yeah, at least if you had, a, like, a friend, that would be different. But, yeah, yeah. With, yeah. Um, by yourself uh, is a little bit dangerous. Yeah. Um, I always so try and, scary. Yeah, I always try and tell my friends, if you were walking on Northgate or something, you know, back to your apartment, and you see a girl who's walking alone, go find an alternate route. You're scared. I can promise you. I bet, I bet you a thousand bucks you're scaring the bejesus out of her right now. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's another thing that you said, Northgate. I think sometimes, even with these gated communities, what I hear is that people forget to lock their doors and they forget to lock their cars, and because they might have been drinking or whatever, so they're real happy and you know carefree and oh, that's never gonna happen to me. But 
you never know. You've got to constantly yeah. be on guard. And also just kind of the, you know, age-appropriate negligence in the sense like, oh, my roommate comes home late. I'll just leave the door unlocked for her. Like that kind of thing. Yeah. But, yeah, no, it makes sense. But I think that's all I have for today. What is there anything else you kind of wanted to say regarding, like... There was something when you were talking earlier about, but I, I think it's kind of left me now. But um, we have lots of information here. We have lots of help for the people that are family members or friends. Um, we do, that's a good thing, is the secondary person. If you have a friend that's been sexually assaulted, you also could be a client too, and we call that a secondary client. So you could come in and we can advise you on um, what to do next. Or maybe you witnessed something yourself. Might not have happened to you, but you saw it. You're still affected by it, and it's still traumatic. Oh, yeah, but, uh, for sure. That, that's something that is traumatic. Right, great. Um, I think that's all we have for today. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on for my interview. That, that really meant a lot to me. Oh, good. Um, and I think this is really an important dialogue to have. Um, you know, because sexual abuse and assault is something that really uh, is the root of a lot of mental illness, like like you said, PTSD, Absolutely. anxiety, depression. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Music in this podcast is brought to you by my very good friend and neighbor, Mitchell, who belongs to a band called Cheap Haircuts. Their music is awesome, and it's raw, and it's on Spotify, and they frequently perform in the Bryan College Station area. So yeah, give them a listen. Um, and also, if you really like this podcast and you'd love to be hearing more of it, please subscribe and listen to uh, and leave a review on iTunes. Uh, thank you so much for taking out of uh, the time out of your guys' day to listen and uh, in on this really important dialogue. And if you have any more questions or want to check Munmukti out, visit us at munmukti.org. And also, don't forget to check us out on social media.